the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Carol Zerniel, looking around the room as if there's a fly buzzing around. You okay? I'm okay. Oh, cool. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, a executive director for the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and we're delighted to do this week after week after week. It, it is week after week, but it, we are delighted. Both things are correct. It just well, we so sound like it went on forever. We, we record <laughs> two shows one week, and so we're not here every week. No, but that's a secret. So if you're listening, don't listen. Oh, now they know. Don't listen. <laughs> Ooh, bad Ronnie. So I have to ask you a question. I, I saw a really interesting article about playgrounds for seniors in Spain. Have you heard of that before? I haven't heard of it. I haven't heard of it. Um, but before you tell me about it, who is coming up? I believe we have a very interesting guest we today. We do. Thank you for reminding me. Jan Doherty, who uh, is a nurse and an expert in battling Alzheimer's and providing all kinds of alternative care. And she has uh, a tremendous experience out in Phoenix, Arizona, working with individuals and families, and especially outreach into the Native American community. And she's at the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. And she'll be here in just a few minutes. Right. So Arizona, Spain, they have a lot in common. I, I tried to see this video about these playgrounds, and it wouldn't play for me at work because it was a movie. So They've tell blocked. me about Yeah, I was very curious. Tell me about it. Well, it, it is uh, for those who, who live in this area. Uh, Santona area, and are familiar with Morgan's Wonderland. The concept is a playground, literally, designed for active and not so active seniors. So the swings are a little bigger, and they don't go quite as high. The uh, uh, walkways are smooth, not a lot of trip hazards. Uh, and the entire facility is really designed to give seniors a wonderful time outdoors. Well, and I think that's so important. One of the um, reasons we are partnering with Morgan's Wonderland for our, our upcoming Alzheimer's grant is because we think people should have fun. People with Alzheimer's should have fun. Uh, people that are taking care of family members with dementia should have fun. Older people should have fun. Uh, and getting outdoors is great. And also, you know, you're walking, you're socializing. There are a lot of reasons why fun's a great idea. And so I am thrilled. I'm curious if this park is familiar with Morgan's Wonderland here in San Antonio, which if you've never seen it, that would be worth a trip to San Antonio just to see that. If you add in the Riverwalk, this is your um, tourism moment here on the show. Uh, San Antonio is a place to come. And Gordon Hartman, who uh, built Morgan's Wonderland, really is a tribute to his daughter, who uh, suffered a, a variety of uh, disabilities from birth on, uh, and her name is Morgan. Right. The it's the a world's, park. It's world's first accessible theme park. Correct. So it's rides, but it's also a water park. Um, and if you just imagine a, a splashdown water park that's accessible to absolutely anyone, it's amazing. It accommodates wheelchairs. They have waterproof wheelchairs they can put you in. That's right. Wheelchairs on the merry-go-round. First merry-go-round in the world designed for right. wheelchairs. Right. So this idea, I, I love this idea um, of a an elder-friendly park, and I, I suspect it may have started with Morgan's Wonderland. May have. We'll have to talk to Gordon about that and check that out. But when you take a look at the variety of populations that go to Morgan's Wonderland, they do get a lot of seniors there because a lot of folks who are grandparents will bring their grandkids with them. And you'll see them on the rides as well, the seniors. So right. and, it and, works. All right. And if you've, if you've um, 
want to experience something totally unique. Um, the, I can remember there was an older woman in her 50s, and she'd been in a wheelchair her whole life. She got in the swing, a wheelchair accessible swing. And, I mean, it just will make you break down in tears. She was laughing and crying. And she said, you know, she intuitively understood the back and forth motion of the swing. But she said she didn't anticipate that stomach drop when it goes right. back down. Oh, and yeah. that was a surprise to her. Well, we took our kids the other day to uh, Howard Elementary School, or kindergarten, where they have a neat playground. And Carter, for the first time, figured out how to swing. He figured out how to move his legs. Legs, and right? Pump, pump, pump in and out. Yeah, that's yeah, a big moment. It was a huge moment, and he yelled out, "Look at me, Daddy!" That's was, right. You don't even have to school. push him. He could do it by himself. Exactly. Oh, great. Yeah, I like that. Kennedy, not so fast, but he'll catch up. That's right. He's, that's why he's got a twin brother to give him motivation. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're both better at certain things. Yes. Yes. Which is good. Like any sibling, which is sure. good. Now I need to ask you because uh, when you think about it. Uh, there are certain challenges to aging that we don't often think about. Well, and you've got eight of them. I've got eight of them. And the reason that there's an article in Next Avenue about the eight challenges of aging is they're looking at the business of aging from the Milken Institute Center on the Future of Aging. And what they're really asking is what is the business opportunity what is the technology opportunity? What should entrepreneurs be thinking about? So it's a challenge for us. It's an opportunity for somebody else to address them. But I thought it was a good list because it's something that, you know, if you, list, if you look at the list, caregivers and their family members are actually facing all of this. So engagement and purpose. Um, I think that's really tricky when somebody has dementia because, you know, in the particularly in the early stages, you don't want... Uh, the person that's living with Alzheimer's to feel like that there's they're not, no longer alive. There's no purpose. There's no reason for them to be here. And that's a time where you really have to fight that. So in 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 our society, just finding purpose as an old person with all of the ageism is a real challenge. So with people living longer than ever before, and with more chronic conditions, finding that engagement and purpose is our opportunity with our longer life. Uh, but it's also a challenge. Uh, the uh, financial wellness is the second one, and that's a really scary one. We just had an economic security summit a week ago with Elizabeth White, um, who you remember was on the show here talking about right. what it's like to be a middle-aged woman who suddenly finds herself um, in, you know, going down the ladder instead of up the ladder and moving into poverty. I remember I, I had the pleasure of emceeing that program, and when she started talking, uh, most folks hadn't read her book, weren't aware of uh, really what her message was. You know, literally jaws dropped when she talked about the very high levels she'd been at in the corporate world and the neat things she's done and the colleges she went to, and then it all fell apart. Oh, yeah, Ivy League, Johns Hopkins, you know, graduate degree, global entrepreneur, and it all falls apart. So that financial wellness piece, how do you live longer and have enough money to, to, for those needs? And if you want to work, will people let you work? Uh, the one that we all know about is mobility and movement, particularly if you've got diabetes, particularly if you've got arthritis. Um, so you were, we were just talking about a, a accessibility in a theme park right. and a sidewalk, something as simple as a sidewalk needing to be smooth so people don't trip on it. My mother broke both her wrists before she passed away. That didn't kill her, but she broke both her wrists, tripped on, a, on the sidewalk in front of her house. My mother broke her wrist uh, rollerblading in front really? of her house. <laughs> Which is not the normal way well, people I like that. that's break their cool. wrists when they're in their 70s. <laughs> so that's that mobility, you know, challenge and opportunity. Uh, so daily living and lifestyle, people want to live in their own home. They want to age in place. And, you know, how do you do that? And how, does your home let you stay there? Are there those stairs? Can you get in and out of your house? Is it too big to clean in the yard, too big to take care of? Uh, so we face that. And caregiving, obviously we know a lot about that one. We do. And it's not just family caregivers. It's also paid caregivers because there's such a shortage of them. Uh, it's a real challenge for residential care and home health agencies uh, to find those those caregivers. Uh, care coordination, that kind of falls in the health care bracket. How do you coordinate all the medical appointments, all the treatments, everything that's happening with your loved one? Uh, and that's a technology. I think that is the first place technology jumped in with meeting planners and scheduling. And there's an app for that. There is. There is. There are multiple apps for that. Uh, brain health, that's the scary one, right? Everyone's afraid of dementia. 
everyone has a reason to be afraid of dementia. I'm waiting for the cure. We're waiting for the cure. And you and I are hoping that I one your broccoli cures it or someone else finds a cure. Actually, I had a guest on the other day on Helmet Radio talking about uh, how important, talking about prostate cancer and ways to prevent it. And I said, well, I heard eating a lot of broccoli will do that. Pause. Pause. Silence. That one well, didn't, didn't work either for that. You know, huh? Ron, if you're eating broccoli, that's good. It's a great vegetable. It's not going to prevent or cure prostate cancer. Wow, that's two things. But I keep eating it. You just keep eating that broccoli. Um, the last one is literally the last one, end of life. So being able to have a, a meaningful life and a, and a death with dignity um, being able to have the conversations, you know, t- Medicare spends 25% of its budget in the last year of life. I, you know, I always look at that statistic and think, well, of course they did because people don't know that they're going to die. But in a lot of cases, the healthcare system does know that the trajectory of this person's health is in a terminal, not good. Alex, not good, terminal drop. Um, they're they're right. probably not going to make it. And so it's not just a cost issue. Uh, but it, actually, it was Elizabeth who said to me uh, that she knows of people making packs. They're, they're storing pills because when they don't have enough money, they think that that's a time to end their life because wow. they don't want to have a lifestyle that is so poor and so downward. Um, they don't want to live that way. And so that usually think of that as a health issue, which speaks volumes to the need to have really meaningful conversations about end of life. Well, there was a lot of attention paid a few years ago to assisted suicide Yes, as a way to help people. And I think that conversation is a lot more common than we think it is. I think that older people have those conversations and think about how they want to die. I mean, we know suicide is still um, higher among older men. Uh, than men it is, 65 and over. Than it is for some of the younger age groups. So, you know, that that's that's kind of the list, and, and, and I'm glad they're looking at it as an opportunity as well. We should look at, at it as an opportunity um, to improve this gift that we've been given of longer life. I remember you were talking when you began these eight challenges of aging. You talked about feeling useful and involved. I, I remember the story you tell that's a fabulous story of having a prepare for a party and you had your mother peel potatoes. Right. And how wonderful that was. She had Alzheimer's. She had Alzheimer's and her muscle memory uh, was there. She could peel potato like a fiend and she wanted to help. And and she was at home for the first time since she had left the residential care facility. And we didn't know how she was going to do. She was so happy to be home. But we wanted to engage her in what we were doing and preparing for Thanksgiving. And that's... um, Thinking along those lines, creating those moments of purpose and usefulness, regardless of the person's condition, you know, I reap the benefit of that. That's it wasn't cool. just my mother. I like that. Jan Doherty comes up next talking about dementia and the work she has done as a nurse in Phoenix, Arizona. We'll have her here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner, Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. We are so pleased you were with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we are delighted to welcome to our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline, Jan Doherty. She is a Family and Community Services Director at Banner Alzheimer's Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. Does a lot of work on dementia programs, has received a number of distinguished awards for her work, and as a nurse uh, has really been recognized for the outreach she has done 
into both the uh, uh, both communities out there, including the Native American community. So, Jan, thanks for joining us. Oh, my honor to be with you today. Uh, tell us, what got you interested uh, in Alzheimer's and working with people with dementia? Well, you know, I, um, I always liked uh, older people, and that's because I had some amazing grandparents and great aunts. And so as I went into nursing, I still recall the very first patient I ever took care of was a 92-year-old lady who had lots of medical issues, but I was actually more interested in her as a person. So I ventured uh, on and eventually got a graduate degree in gerontological nursing, which is care of older adults. And um, little did I know, really, the biggest issue that would come to face uh, aging Americans is this issue called Alzheimer's disease. And so I really kind of stumbled into it as a volunteer with a local Alzheimer's association serving on their board and then ultimately working with them and uh, running some novel programs. And, you know, once you start working um, with these individuals who are affected and their family caregivers, um, it's hard to go back to anything else. Uh, I, I guess I found my passion there. Tell us a little bit about some of the programs that you pioneered. They include dementia care paths and best practices for dementia care management. What was that all about? Well, you know, that was actually in the early 90s. Um, you know, I was working with a hospital system where uh, we were implementing uh, care management, which is how do we take care of high-risk populations. And, and much of the focus, you know, continues to be around people with heart issues and diabetes and chronic lung issues. And what I quickly realized is that uh, dementia, uh, sometimes often it was undiagnosed, was a complicating factor and case managers were spinning their wheels. They, you know, they could manage heart disease and diabetes, boy, but they didn't have a clue on what to do with uh, somebody who is affected by Alzheimer's disease or related dementia. And so what I set about to do was standardize um, methods that case managers could better assess the needs of these individuals and their families so that they could more effectively provide solutions to them. So did a lot of training around um, that area, and it included working with case managers and hospitals and health plans and, and uh, area agency on aging and the like. So um, it was really a wonderful project to help kind of solidify knowledge and skills for those individuals. So what do you think has changed in the last, oh, let's say five years uh, in hospitals and healthcare related to persons with dementia? Are we well, seeing- I've, you know, I'd love to say, oh, they're embracing it, they get it, but unfortunately I would say most health systems are really lagging, especially on the acute care side of um, recognizing uh, patients who come into their hospitals to know that they have Alzheimer's disease, and certainly um, our healthcare professionals are lacking skill sets in doing um, best practice care because, one, it hasn't really been articulated, and, two, quite honestly, we have not educated our workforce about Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. There's still a very small percentage of practicing um, clinicians, whether it be physicians, nurses, social workers, and the like, who really have a unique skill set around dementia because the focus of our system, especially around caring for older adults, has been traditionally looking at how do we care for people with heart disease, cancer, stroke, uh, you know, pulmonary diseases, that sort of thing. So dementia has largely been forgotten, and I think it's because um, people still see it as a disease for which there's no hope. And I think when clinicians feel hopeless and they don't know what to do, they kind of bury their heads. And yet, I would say uh, now more than ever, um, we've learned there is so much uh, we can do to help people live well that it is important for them to get a diagnosis and a proper diagnosis and that with that we can arm them and their care partners at that point, hopefully earlier in their illness, to know how to live better with this condition. So, I, you know, um, I'd say our hospital systems are lagging, and that is across this country, and I would say globally. And yet on the ambulatory side, I think we're making better strides with uh, better diagnosis and uh, offering programs that can be helpful to people and their families. Stay with me just a minute. For those who have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron with our co-host Carol Zerniel, and we're talking with Jan Doherty, 
on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. She's out in the Phoenix, Arizona area talking about her work uh, at the Banner Alzheimer's Institute with folks with dementia. I, I remember, and I know Carol does, we had a guest on, uh, this is probably a year or so ago, whose husband had uh, uh, dementia and other issues, and he, he couldn't speak. And she had to take him into the emergency room, and the provider there insisted on talking to her husband, not to her, although she kept saying, he can't speak and he doesn't understand you. And that went on for quite a while. Obviously, she was frustrated. Yeah, and rightly so. And I think this really underscores how ill-prepared our healthcare providers are to really understand uh, the needs of these individuals and the very important role that uh, caregivers, care partners play as advocates and even historians for that person who might have a, a disease like primary progressive aphasia where they lose their ability to communicate and yet they could still provide a I guess some information if we find the right way to do it with them or for people with advancing dementia who are too confused. And I know it's been a real concern, especially with health privacy laws, that um, there's been a, a kind of a push almost to shut out families until recently. I think caregivers have been really speaking out and advocating that, no, I am their, uh, you know, their health uh, advocate. Um, I'm their proxy decision maker. You must speak with me. And sadly, um, you know, as, as I work with caregivers, I educate them that, look, you know about more about your family member's um, dementia than uh, if you're going to encounter a healthcare professional in the hospital. Don't think they're going to get it, especially if you have Lewy body dementia or frontal temporal dementia. They're clueless. And so you're going to have to be the educator. Don't think that they're going to get it. Well, in, you so- know, in the case that Ron was talking about, the the way that they handled the situation was the caregiver said, all right, go ahead, ask him your questions. I'm going to go get coffee. And so mm-hmm. she left for five minutes. And when she came back, they said, your husband can't talk, can he? And she said, nope. Yeah, <laughs> That's wow. what I told you to begin with. <laughs> so they were yeah. happy to see her at that point. Five minutes mm-hmm. later, it made a big difference. Yeah, wow. Now, in your work, you, you've also taken a look at hospice care for dementia and mm-hmm. palliative care for advanced dementia. Yeah. We've done a lot of programs on hospice and palliative care. How does it differ for someone with dementia, and what should we be doing better? Well, it does differ because I think, um, you know, much of the work in hospice and palliative care, again, is around these chronic conditions like cancer and heart disease, you know, congestive heart failure. And people with advanced dementia present very different from a symptoms uh, perspective, and therefore they need different care. And so as we look at what are the symptoms that need to be managed in advanced dementia, they're often around sleep and around uh, eating, around anxiety and depression, and around meaningful engagement. And um, when I began this work, oh gosh, it was, you know, um, around 2004, uh, we were really early pioneers in Arizona around this. We saw that in the hospice realm that uh, very much there was an order set that treated them like cancer, meaning that they came on, we ordered morphine, we ordered um, Ativan, um, thinking that they would have a death very similar to that of people who are dying of cancer, and nothing could be further from the truth. And once again, we found that our healthcare professionals were just really ill-prepared to know how to meet the needs of these individuals. And so how we have carved out unique strategies to identify and assess what their needs are, whether it be pain, anxiety, depression, um, we've certainly learned that it's very possible to bring meaning to people living with advanced dementia through meaningful engagement. And certainly there's been a lot of research on the, on the use of music and the like. But, um, again, very uh, different strategies are needed uh, to meet the needs of these individuals. Likewise, for family caregivers who have been at this for some 6, 12, 8, sometimes 20 years, their needs, too, are, are very unique in terms of how we understand them. And, and I'm delighted to say I think our, our work around caregiver grief and loss has, is now emerging in a much more powerful way that we identify better ways to support families who are um, going through this final phase of illness, but then, as importantly, help think about how do we transition them into a new life after this void of being a caregiver takes place. Well, that's a good point. Do you find that caregivers um, often want to come back and give back 
with everything that they've learned over these 8, 12, 20 years of caregiving? Or, or do most of them run for the door and, and never come back? You know, I think it really varies, just like uh, the disease varies in in individuals. Some people um, need to keep moving forward and away from a condition that has greatly drained them. And others um, are are encouraged to help new caregivers become, you know, almost mentors to them uh, when time is ready. So we've used uh, and, and have found so many incredible caregivers who say, I want to give back, I want to uh, make a difference in the lives of others. So, for example, we have a woman right now who's part of our memory cafe in Tempe. So this is a weekly program that meets at the Tempe Library for people affected with dementia. They uh, are involved in a really wonderful engagement program why the care partners get together and our leader of that group lost her husband about two years ago to a early onset uh, form of dementia. And she has found um, just tremendous healing and, and wisdom, I guess, in sharing her experiencing and facilitating okay. a group like this. So we see a, a hold variety that, of responses. Hold that thought a minute. We're going to come right back to you. Don't mean to cut you off, but we've got to jump to the news. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Jan Doherty is with us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline as we talk about dementia and helping caregivers and those with dementia. You hear us on 930 AM, The Answer. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we're talking with Jan Doherty, on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline. She's out in Phoenix, Arizona, and is Family and Community Services Director at Banner Alzheimer's Institute. And for those who are listening, uh, you mentioned Memory Cafe, and a lot of folks, although we have them in this area, may not know what they are. Well, you know, it's, it's, a, um, it's growing across the U.S., and I think we take our lead from our colleagues across the pond in the United Kingdom who have really had a huge focus on helping people to live well uh, with dementia as well as their, their family caregivers. And so the memory cafes vary depending on, on where you go, but we started ours as part of our dementia-friendly movement in Tempe, Arizona. And uh, for us, we have carved out this memory cafe to meet in the library. Again, we find it to be just a very uh, friendly place for people to go that lacks stigma, so people with memory loss um, don't feel stigmatized walking into uh, this place. Um, likewise, you know, so many uh, individuals live with this condition who are younger, so they might not want to go to a senior center or faith community, but we gather weekly to bring uh, people living with dementia and their care partners together because really what we're trying to do is combat social isolation that sets in way too early in this condition. And our goal is to build community uh, for these um, individuals uh, to come together and be with others who are living with the same condition and uh, create new friendships. And, in fact, that's what we've seen is just this new community has formed. Each week we have about 50 participants, that's probably about 15 people living with uh, dementia who come together for engagement and, you know, about 30 caregivers. In fact, we now have two parallel support groups for them. Um, and what we've seen are these new friendships form and people are getting educated to, to be um, more informed caregivers as well as solidifying friendship. So it's, it's really been a wonderful place that people can look forward to um, going on a weekly basis. Well, I think that's so important, you know, that the idea of socialization and we often hear, you know, the number one rule of caregiving is don't isolate, don't isolate, don't isolate. And it it can creep up on you. I know my own mother who had Alzheimer's was embarrassed and didn't want to be around other people that she had known previously, but at the same time she was desperate to find other people in early-stage Alzheimer's who could identify with what she was going through and they could compare notes on how they could do things better and cope better. Yeah, and that's what we've seen is, is obviously the caregivers absolutely love getting together, but, you know, the people living with this condition also look forward to the new friends that they're meeting. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking of a, a son who is caring for his mom who uh, has mild cognitive impairment, probably moving towards early-stage Alzheimer's disease, but 
she has found such benefit in just being with others in a place where she can't fail that uh, the uh, engagement activities that we do are really varied from um, exercise to discussion groups to arts, et cetera, that they're intelligent, they're adult-like, um, she has a place, her opinions matter. It's just an incredibly fun and respectful environment that's created for those folks, too. And I think that's important for caregivers to see that it is possible that you can get out and there are platforms and places within the community that your person can succeed and feel like they belong because really our, our communities in some ways are restrictive. And I think this whole uh, dementia-friendly movement, in my opinion, is about how do we expand the Americans Disabilities Act to remove the cognitive barriers that we've created within our communities. We've certainly uh, moved curbways and, and that sort of thing, but boy, we've got a long ways to go in terms of thinking about how do we accommodate our um, you know, citizens who have cognitive um, differences to succeed. Give us some examples. What would be an example or two of those cognitive changes that you would look well, for? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, for example, planning and problem solving can be difficult. So as we think about um, educating our transportation staff, our people working in senior centers, how they can be much more helpful in guiding customers to be successful and still maintain some level of independence as they try to uh, get out and about within their community is one example. Um, we have taken uh, underway in Tempe uh, a white wayfinding study. So we looked at how accessible are our buildings from um, our signage perspective. Can you read our signage? Can you even understand our signage? Does that make sense? And um, we have started incorporating uh, icons along with uh, the word trying to direct uh, the person. So, for example, we know that people coming into buildings are, first of all, always looking for information. You know, where do I go? And so um, the signage is, is large. It's got color contrast from a dark sign on the back with white uh, printing with a large font. And then it has an icon. So like for information, we have a question mark and uh, with, with the arrows pointed to information desk. For our bathrooms, because people are often looking for facilities, we not only have signage that say restrooms with the appropriate um, sign pointing towards that door, but um, we also have a picture of a toilet that goes on it. So again, this idea of universal signage, you know, that picture is worth a thousand words, also provides directionality. And then finally, I'll tell you, we're really looking at our community calendar because the reality is a lot of our senior centers are not dementia-friendly or dementia-capable, meaning that they really have not crafted programs that are serving a growing number of older adults who are having difficulty cognitively keeping pace with programs. And so how is it we define and um, create these programs that really meet the social and engagement needs of people who are living often with early stages of this condition and they don't even know it? And so I think those are just kind of a few examples of, you know, how do communities become more dementia-friendly or think about uh, the needs of people with cognitive impairments for different reasons. She's Jan Doherty, and we're delighted to have her on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Jan is the Family and Community Services Director at Banner Alzheimer's Institute in Phoenix, and she's also been talking about Tempe, which is not far from Phoenix. So I'm curious. Um, I know one of the programs that you've been working with um, is a Native American outreach program, and I'm wondering how is Alzheimer's viewed in Indian country and, you know, what kind of programming uh, – is culturally appropriate for that population? Yeah, great question. Um, yes, we've had the distinct privilege of um, doing outreach. We have 22 tribes, uh, federally recognized tribes here in Arizona. And, of course, um, they're, they're very different uh, according to tribal affiliation in terms of customs and although beliefs are often uh, similar across tribal uh, countries uh, related to um, kind of the aging process and how dementia fits in or not. So when we started this work, oh gosh, some 12, 14 years ago, um, what we learned is that in many tribes there was not even a word uh, for the word dementia in their in their tribal language. 
And in fact, um, many Native cultures believe that uh, aging is a is kind of a, a, a circle of life where one begins their life as a child, and as they move towards their elderhood, they uh, become more childlike. And certainly, if if you understand Alzheimer's as development in reverse, I guess this makes a lot of sense. And so I would say that the bulk of elders were not getting a diagnosis. Um, and like uh, we see in other cultures, there's a lot of stigma around it. And so our work has really been being very respectful, working with tribal communities, um, bringing increased awareness about things like Alzheimer's disease and also listening and being respectful in terms of what is acceptable in terms of treatment and approach, um, we have crafted um, a, a variety of programs really teaching caregivers how to better care for their person who's affected by Alzheimer's disease. We've been trying to work with uh, tribal health professionals to educate them about how do you make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, again, how do you care for them if you're a public health nurse. Um, and that sort of thing. So just a variety of strategies that, that have happened that have really been, I think, very exciting, very instrumental. We actually held the very first national conference on Alzheimer's disease in Native Americans, and that was very exciting, kind of bringing together a smaller cohort of Native professionals who have great interest and expertise in this area and uh, trying to share that with tribal communities as well as non-tribal people to understand the unique needs. So, for example, um, we know that in, uh, in Western culture, we talk a lot about caregiver burden. And interestingly, within our Native populations, uh, caregivers don't like the word burden. In fact, they consider it an honor and a privilege to care for their elder, and they see the elders uh, in, in a very distinct and uh, respectful way. And it's not to say that they don't experience stress, but this would be a cultural difference. You're not going to go in and talk to them about their burden because that would be considered very disrespectful. Interesting, interesting. And I, I know in, with some work with some of our Hispanic cultures, the burden really, I mean, you're, that really refers to something a pack animal would do, it, you know, some of the word, the language that we use and translate. And there's no word for caregiver. In right, Spanish. Right. right, in Spanish, yeah. yeah. Because somebody, the, the caregiver or the cuidadora is somebody who takes care of the animals or takes care of the garden. That's really it. We had a, a, a physician on with us, uh, this is a few years ago now, uh, who is Vietnamese, and he was talking about something that is so uh, foreign to many of us in the Anglo community. He talked about how his mother was deciding uh, which of her children she would go live with, and he was so hoping he would be the one. They were battling over bringing their aging mother into their home. Right, that's right. So who was going to get to take care of mom in her old age? And here it's, uh, well, gee, Carol, you take her. <laughs> so, so you know, the, I, I think it's, it's wonderful to hear um, that we are realizing that there are cultural differences. Uh, one size does not fit all. And just the same way that we were needing to address uh, illness and disease in culturally appropriate ways, we also have to think about dementia, Alzheimer's, and the response. Now, we've got a couple of minutes left. And before we jump out, I, I want to ask you, Jan, uh, if you can share with us your thoughts on what would make the world a better place will make you king for a day. What would make this a better place for folks with dementia, and what would those changes look like? Well, you know, I, um, I've had the privilege of going to, traveling to the U.K. and Europe and look at how they look at dementia, and, um, and uh, I think their framework is very different that I've really come to appreciate. So in the U.S., I think we're very focused on managing the, the dementia and um, when I look at the U.K., they're very much more focused on living well with dementia. And when you think about living well versus managing, I mean, you can manage symptoms of a chronic condition, and yet the person is not living well. And you can live well with a condition that is completely out of control. So um, I guess if I, you know, could wave my wand while we're waiting for strategies that we hope will eventually find more effective treatment for Alzheimer's disease, I would like to see a world that um, is aligned, thinking that um, we all have the possibility of helping people live well with this chronic condition, that we can help caregivers 
um, live well, learn strategies where they can feel more effective, competent, and that we will find um, strategies that will help them deal with their grief and loss as the person in front of them is changing. We understand that. So I hope that makes sense, um, this idea that we can help people live well until, and then that they would die well as well because they would have healthcare professionals and friends around them who are knowledgeable. Well, I think that that makes perfect sense. It's beautiful. Uh, and so if people want to find out more about Banner Alzheimer's Institute or your work, Jan, um, is there a website somewhere they could go? Yes, there certainly is. So it's www.banner, B-A-N-N-E-R-A-L-Z, as in zebra, for bannerals.org. Um, and uh, we have a great website with lots of resources for families and uh, some online videos and a lot of webinars that we've created, all very focused on family caregiving. Perfect. So, hey, thank you so much for talking with us. We really appreciate it. Jan Doherty. Thanks for having me. Family and Community Service Director, Banner Alzheimer's Institute. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS on air at 9.30 a.m. The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to... Well, I'm at radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. At the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS On Air programs, we bring you Take 10, where Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known gerontologist, a psychologist, and a man who deals with not only caregivers but understands addictions as well, joins us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. And Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here. And Carol, we had a guest on the show talking about really ways to mainstream and normalize Alzheimer's as a caregiver and as an Alzheimer's patient. Right. She was talking about um, how all the work we've done with the Americans with Disabilities Act to try to mainstream people with physical disabilities, but doesn't really find that people with cognitive impairment, cognitive disabilities, and Jamie, you might even say behavioral health disabilities or issues are mainstreamed, um, normalized in American society. Would you agree with that assessment? I totally agree. I think behavioral issues or any issues that involve the brain as opposed to the rest of the body somehow another test our belief system, and, and, and we seem to stigmatize it. I think there's a lack of awareness uh, about behavioral issues and about neurological issues, and I think it gets caught up in the world of stigma and stereotypes more than any other medical condition out there. Why is there so much stigma, so much, um, well, I don't want to use misinformation, fake news, misinformation. Why is that such a hard nut to crack? Why is behavioral health and cognitive impairment and the brain, why, is our, why don't the heads get the same uh, courtesy and respect the rest of our bodies get? That's great. And, uh, that's a good question. If you look at America's healthcare system, you'll also see that happens in the insurance world. It took, you know, years and years and years for behavioral health to get parity, which is uh, on equal footing as medical conditions. Even the insurance industry saw it as, as something separate and distinct from the, from the body. They, and so they separated it. And even today, insurance companies have what's called behavioral health carve-outs. It's not even a part of the medical condition. Um, in fact, today, in the year 2019, we're just starting to integrate behavioral health into medical clinics. The stigma uh, and why people don't want to talk about it um, just seems to be kind of in a, in a dumpster, if you will. And, and people avoid interacting about it. 
Well, one of the questions that I ask um, a guest on the show who was somebody who runs a large foundation and aging institute in California um, was, is there, you know, should we be looking at Alzheimer's the same way we do other ADA issues or other um, physical disability issues so that, you know, even in the world of disabilities, if you are born with a cognitive impairment or a cognitive disability, there you, you are qualify for services. But, you know, there's almost nothing for people who have a traumatic brain injury, and there's really nothing. Nothing is covered in the insurance world. They don't offer services. You're not eligible for anything if you develop now, you dementia. Know- no, you're so right. And we went through this in the addiction world. In fact, we couldn't even build addiction treatment centers until we finally got an ADA uh, certification. But we did not see addictions as, as uh, uh, a disability. And today, you know, stigma, um, it, it just hangs around the neck of people with Alzheimer's and neurological issues, and it prevents them from seeking the medical treatment um, when really symptoms are present um, it, because people are scared to death. If they, you know, as opposed to finding out they have a heart issue or a renal issue, uh, for some reason the stigma has kept people away from proper diagnosis. Well, we need more compassion and empathy. I was touched uh, not long ago. My daughter, Reagan, takes golf lessons, and a mother of a son in those lessons came up to me and said, I want to congratulate you and thank you. My son is very hard of hearing, and your daughter worked with him and helped him and uh, paid no attention that he couldn't hear. And it was really an amazing moment. Wow. See, that's exactly how we mainstream it, because it is an amazing moment. Children are, are, made, are have not been socialized, if you will, with that stigma. Uh, they're so open. They're so curious. And, and they're so easy to engage. And that's exactly where we want to get the general population. And that's why we have to find ways, uh, which I think, you know, Caregiver SOS and, and certainly Wellman Charitable Foundation leads the way, ways to, to, to normalize it, to be open, to communicate that, to educate people. Uh, literally, that this is like any other medical condition. I'm going to talk more about trying to mainstream uh, those who have dementia. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernian, and we're talking with Dr. Jamie Heisman on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. I I told this story once before. Uh, I was in a local grocery store in line to check out, and the woman in front of me uh, had what I believe was her mother with her, and they were checking out, and the mother turned and started taking all the items I was putting on the conveyor belt and putting them into her basket. And her daughter uh, uh, turned to me and I said, no, that's okay. It's, it's really interesting. And she said, well, mom has uh, dementia and we try to get her out more. I thought it was pretty interesting to see that. She put the items, the mother put the items, uh, the daughter put the items back on the conveyor belt. And the mother was fine with that. It's just that she was trying to be a helper. Yes, I'm sure, Carol, you've seen it often in terms of your work as a gerontologist, is that even in restaurants, Ron, sometimes family members will sometimes give a card, if you will, to the waiter uh, or to somebody around. And, and obviously we do that with no other medical condition, but communication is, is, is a challenge. And so what they seem to do is hand that card out to tip the other person off. You experienced it firsthand in the grocery store. Well, and I don't think that's such a bad idea. I mean, this idea of... Letting somebody know, I'm thinking of, you know, my mother-in-law at my uh, wedding rehearsal dinner eating the butter pats off of the table. She's peeling the cellophane and eating the little square pat of butter one after the other. And the waitress was just horrified (laughs) that she's eating all this butter. (laughs) And I, I looked at it. I looked at the waitress when I realized what was happening. I said, well, she's obviously hungry. How about could you bring some bread to go with that butter? And that's what she did. She ran to the kitchen oh, that's to get some bread. Huh. Um, but you know that the idea of making you know cause that's great. the you know behaviors can be interesting. People that have um, any kind of cognitive impairment or behavioral health issues, I mean, the behavior issues are, are a little off kilter. Instead of being critical, though, you ought to embrace them. Well, it's just it's well, um, absolutely. Yeah, and I was saying, you know, it's it's like no, no, go ahead. But it's the idea of how do you how do we make that acceptable to be a little different? Well, you know, it's interesting because it is a great fear out there. People fear their jobs. People fear their relationships. People fear the stigma itself. 
So, you know, the Alzheimer's Association has done, I think, an excellent job in terms of early stage advisory groups and being able to put people together and family members together early on. It's uh, you know, it's important for us to, to stay engaged in meaningful relationships. And, and what happens is that we start detaching. We start becoming part of that stigma. So I believe the first step is really strong outreach, strong education, strong way to mainstream it, mainstream it not just you know, to adults, but even in our, our school system to see this as actually a normal part of our aging process. Well, and I'm thinking about, you know, talking about the restaurants again, you know, when we had small children, we would go very early in the evening, so we weren't disrupting um, the people that were paying high-dollar date dinners, <laughs> you know, to make an impression or, or enjoy a quiet evening. Um, but letting people know it's okay if you, you know, if you're, you bring your loved one that has Alzheimer's to our early bird special um, and have that staff understand, you know, maybe have limited choices. I mean, I can see where you could build a program to encourage that socialization. It's a marketing opportunity. It, it is. Yeah. Uh, I think, again, I'll refer back to the Alzheimer's Association. I think they do great work in terms of online communities and, and being able to, to bring, you know, this type of education to, to communities. Um, but, again, they're called the Alzheimer's Association. Go figure. So they're already starting from that sort of stigmatizing place. I just think we need to get this in our system and behavioral issues and neurological issues, you know, in our medical care mainstreamed with our physicians with our patients, and with our insurance companies. That's the first place we start. So I think that, uh, you know, just um, being able to have those conversations in the primary care environment uh, and having particularly like in some place like WellMed where you have a team of people that are supporting that patient to support the the family member uh, and be able to have a longer conversation uh, about dementia and recommendations for living well with the disease. Jamie, we've got to start you right there. We're flat out of time, but thank you very much. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerdiel, Dr. Jamie Heisman, on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.